0: Um so last week uh and we were kind, of, kind of talked about what does it mean to be to belong. Um and that's we're gonna continue to to kind of dive into that. What does it mean to belong to the church? And so some men from Judea uh, they came to Antioch and they were saying that a person needs to be circumcised uh, in order to be saved. Well, Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, um, and then The church thought it best to send them to Jerusalem to ask the apostles and the elders uh, what they thought in regards to this issue. As they went down, uh, many were excited to hear that the Gentiles were were turning to the gospel through uh, Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. Uh, But some believers in the Jerusalem church, who were says they were aligned with the Pharisees, said that uh, the Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to obey the law of Moses. Um, and so they make their way down there. Uh, you know, one commentator said that their kind of trip down was maybe like a campaign, because it was 250 miles from Antioch to uh, Jerusalem. So as Paul and Barnabas went, they kind of shared what they were doing with the churches. And everyone was excited. Um, and so maybe built up you know, their, their hearts in regards to what the Lord is doing. And uh, they make it finally to the church. And... Um, and uh, kind of share what's going on. That's kind of where we got to last week. We got to that kind of like what the, the believers, you know, they are believers, they're part of the church, they believe in Jesus Christ, but they were Pharisees, um, a conservative movement uh, that in, in Judaism, very strict in Bible reading and Bible interpretation. Um, but a lot of times Jesus had to remind them, like, have you not heard? Have you not read? You know, do you not know what the scripture says? Because um, they sometimes missed what God was doing or the intent of what God was doing um, by obeying certain regulations and obeying certain laws. And those were usually sticking points. So as we kind of talk about this, you know, there was, there was this idea of, um, of something that you need to do in order to be saved or in order to belong to the church. It was kind of, you know, another way that we can look at it. Um, they made it a salvation issue, but it's also a fellowship issue as, as, as belonging to the church. Um, as I was thinking about this issue, um, there was a group that kind of came to mind as far as uh, you know, what, what had happened to them in church history. Um, how many of you heard of the Anabaptists? Okay, um, how many of you know... About the Anabaptists, <laughs> so you might have heard that term. You know, the Anabaptists are somewhere in church history, but you know what? What exactly was this group? So, Anna—not anti, but Anna—is um, means re in Greek, and baptized is baptized, baptismo. And so, they were accused of rebaptizing people. Um, they were a group that came out of the Reformation and said that uh, you know, the reforms that you know the Reformation again was pro- protesting what the Catholic Church was doing and saying that there needs to be reforms um, in regards to practices in the Catholic Church. Um, The Catholic Church, even today, would acknowledge, yes, there were reforms that needed to be done. Um, And so we would say as, you know, coming in that line of Protestants that there are certain reforms that, you know, the Catholics should have even done to continue along that. So they made some reforms, um, and the Anabaptists said, well, there's a few more things that, we think should be reformed as well. And this is actually like kind of within that Protestant, you know, uh, in the early, you know, Protestant group, um, kind of a split, what had happened. But it's kind of amazing like how they were dealt with and, and what had happened. So if we kind of get like a context of historically the things that were going on, Luther nailed his, his 95 Theses in 1517, Okay, So we think of 1517 is when he first posted something of like, hey, here's some things that, need, that we need to do as a reform to the church. Um, four years later, in 1521, he stands before the, the Catholic Council and, at the Diet of Worms and basically says, you know, I can't recant. Like He's told, you need to recant of all the things you've said, and he's like, I can't. And there's that famous thing where he's like, you know, um, what is that, I can't recant. Uh, I will, it's not, it goes against conscience, so I will not uh, recant um, because to go against conscience is neither wise nor profitable. And so here I stand, I can do no other. You know, there's, and there's some theatrical addings to whatever he said. But he basically said, like, you know, I stand on the word of God. If you can show me from scripture to, to recant, but otherwise I can't do it because it goes against my conscience. Well, that was only four years later. Now, Mark, uh, Ulrich Zing- Zwingli. That was in Germany, so Martin Luther was in Germany. Just south of there in Switzerland, Ulrich Zwingli um, was a Catholic priest who was starting to kind of take you know hold of some of Luther's ideas, and he was preaching reform in 1522. Well, Zwingli, Zwingli's di- disciples, just a year later, wanted to see some of those reforms go even further. And one of those reforms was the fact that um, even in all of the, the changes that were going on, which has really had to do with uh, the authority of Scripture. And, um, you know, I guess there's a lot more that goes to this, but that the Scripture should be read by everyone uh, and a lot of other things that kind of trickle down from there. Um, but one of the things that, the, that, that never really got changed that we would see as kind of a big sticking point is the fact that they baptized infants. So you were baptized in the Catholic Church as an infant, and you were brought into the Catholic Church as an infant, and there was no need to be baptized after that. Well, that was something that continued uh, to occur, even in the Reformation. Uh, and even in Zwingli's church, as much as he had done for the Reformation, uh, that was some, still an issue of infant baptism, was still kind of the mode of, of acceptance at of that day. And the Anabaptists said... We see in Scripture that a person should only be baptized after a profession of faith. That it is upon a confession of faith that then that they are baptized according to what uh, Christ had commanded um, in the Great Commission and some of these other things. So how did the church respond? It's one of those things that you would say, like, baptism today, you know, there are those that still do infant baptism, and those that, you know, like, like our church, that we would do a believer's baptism, um, which again is three o'clock in two weeks. And uh, <laughs> uh, if you want to participate, what's that? Be there, be square. Be there, be square. So, um, and so uh, as a result of their kind of defiance, Wingley wanted to leave it up to the council because at that time, uh, the church and the state were very intertwined. And it was if people didn't do things that were a part of what the church uh, doctrine said, that there were authorities in the government that could, um, you know, levy repercussions on the people. And so the council uh, in uh, Zurich, which is where there were in in Switzerland, um, uh, decided that a person should still be baptized. And there was one particular uh, person who, you know, Continued to resist baptizing his own infant daughter because he felt that it went against what Scripture says. That when she, you know, grows up and can make a, faith, a profession of faith on her own, that she uh, she could then be baptized. So it became this big issue. And even though the council had said, you know, you must do this, um, a group decided that they were going to to baptize, you know, believers. Um, and so the first first baptism was in 1525. And so, again, it's only a few short years after you know, uh, the Reformation of some of these things occurring. <clears throat> but the first baptism was in 1525, and the first martyr was the, the man whose house it was at, where they had the baptism, plus he was an ardent um, you know, preacher and would go around speaking for some of uh, what they believed. He was martyred in January of 1527. And the church took him in a boat, took him to the middle of the, of a, of the river there, um, and baptized him for a third time, which was drowning. And so it's one of those things in church history that we look at and we think, how did it come to this? You know, that a person believes something uh, about um, what it means to be a part of the church or, you know, and, and for, the, for the Anabaptists, which they wouldn't have adopted that name, but rebaptizer, But for them, they believed there was only one baptism, uh, and that was after a profession in Jesus Christ. And so, But the church at that time was so aligned with the state, and the state had made a decision, I mean the, the local government, made a decision that to go against the local authorities meant a punishment, and this punishment, they felt, was worthy of death. Um. So when we think about what it means or how far something can go in order to what you believe, in order to being a part of what we say is the church, there's some things that even in our own history is kind of a black eye to decisions that we would say were probably made wrongly. Now we can look at that and kind of make those criticisms, especially for like a short reason. There's a book called uh, The Reformers and Their Stepchildren. It goes... Um, the last name is Verduin, which is a really good book. I read it in seminary, and it was kind of like very eye-opening to like, like why they would even you know, think about doing some of those things. Like one, responding to the the, the uh, Anabaptists that way. And the Anabaptists were actually persecuted not only by the Reformed Church, but they were also persecuted by the Catholic Church as well. They were tortured and uh, the Catholic Church has instances of giving them a third baptism, which is drowning, um, as well, because it went against the state mandate, because the church and the state are so intertwined. And for us, it's such a foreign concept. So that book kind of put those things in perspective. But for them, that was like just something that was a part of their life. So when we kind of look at what's happening here at the Jerusalem Council, you know, it was for a Jew that anybody that became a Jew. And we talked about this, you know, last week, like the reasons why. But anybody who became a Jew to be converted and to be accepted and to then be looked at as a Jew and to then have full rights as a Jew must be circumcised, and then they had to obey uh, the they had to obey the Torah, they had to obey the commandments of God, and that went along with anybody who was a Jew that you had to obey the commandments of God. If you did, there was blessing, and if you didn't, there was cursing, and so for uh, that was kind of where we left off for. Uh, these men who were from the Pharisees, again, a very devout, very, you know, we know that Jesus, again, butted heads with them a lot um, because they were so devout in their faith that they said it is necessary to circumcise them, in verse 5, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Like, if you want them, if they need to truly be looked at as a part of what God's plan is of salvation... They need to do this. So, you need to order them. You need to get circumcised. Otherwise, they're being disobedient. And you need to tell them they need to obey the law of Moses. And so, from our perspective, we're like, well, we know that they were in error. And we have also hindsight of of where, you know, of what scripture kind of goes further into this detail. But you can understand why they believed in the error that they, they thought. Also, you can understand, too, why you know, a little bit, I don't know if we'll truly understand, why at certain times in church history people enacted an error and uh, persecuted others in the wrong way. So let's pick it up in verse 6, and we'll kind of dive a little bit deeper. But I don't know, as I was kind of studying and thinking about this, uh, the Anabaptists had come to my mind as like this group that kind of fit the context of what we were looking at. And there's others that we could look at as well. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So it says in verse six, the beginning: the apostles and the elders were gathered together. This this meeting. Um, is often referred to as the Jerusalem Council. So in other places, you know, if we talk about the Jerusalem Council, um, this is the halfway point in the book of Acts. It's also kind of a turning point as to what missions is going to look like um, as, uh, as it goes forward. And that's after this, we're just going to follow Paul um, and Barnabas slightly, but, but Paul mostly to where he is led um, in his missions. And, and when he goes and he you know, proclaims the gospel, what are some things that are necessary in order to set up the church and build up the church and things that are, are done out of particular practice? And so the Jerusalem Council is going to be very instructive for us um, going forward. So it says that there was much debate. Um, verse 7, after there had been much debate. So if there was much debate... Um, what does that indicate? The fact that there had been much debate at this Jerusalem council. So there was a difference of opinion. And on the surface, that's definitely true. There's def- a definite difference of opinion. If there's a difference of opinion, what likely had not been discussed up to this point? Probably this particular issue, right? You probably had friends or, you know, coworkers, or things like that that, like, you've had no problem talking to and maybe knew them for a couple years, and all of a sudden you get into a conversation and you're like, it got a little bit uh, more tense. Um, because you finally, like, hear, like, what they believe or something like that, and there had not been, been nothing that had kind of come up to this point. So if there had really been not, not much debate at this time, um, there's a couple things that we could then, uh, we could then assume. One, we could assume that no Gentiles had come to faith up to this point. So that's one thing. Maybe it's a predominantly Jewish area. And so far, everybody that had had, had come to faith, because the church is definitely growing. I mean, we've seen that, that the numbers swelled and people left and then the numbers grew again. Um, so people are being added to their, added to their numbers. Um, we don't know, again, numbers by this time, uh, but the gospel is, is being shared. But at this point... We don't see any Gentiles that, um, either that, that have come into the fold at the Jerusalem church, partly because our focus has not been at the Jerusalem church for a while. After Peter preached to Cornelius, and we'll touch on that in a little bit, um, there wasn't much, you know, much discussion after that. It was kind of a big deal, but that wasn't even in, uh, um, in Jerusalem. It was over on the coast, which was still in Judea, but it was over you know, a little bit further away than the, the central hub, of where this church was at. So you can assume that that could be the case. Maybe no Gentiles, because it's not really a heavily Gentile area, so, so maybe that's the case is just by sheer numbers that this issue never came into uh, to debate. Or, if there were Gentiles, what would have been the expectation for them? If there were Gentiles that had been saved that were a part of the Jerusalem church, what would have been the expectation? That they be circumcised. That they be circumcised. And some of it would have been, you know, all right, be circumcised. And for them, if you grew up in that area or if you knew that area, any Jew who became, you know, or any Gentile who became a Jew would have been circumcised. So that would have just been like, oh, yeah, I know that comes with the territory, to be circumcised. And then to obey the law of Moses, you guys are obeying the law of Moses. And then, you know, you believe in Jesus Christ as well. That would have just kind of been part of, like, what they would have done. It's like if you get married and, you know, at Christmas time, we have this tradition. Well, you just would have adopted that tradition, you know, unless you feel like, well, I'm not doing that. But um, typically, you know, as you get adopted into whatever family, as your family grows, you get in laws, you know, you kind of adopt certain customs and certain things that you're going to do. And for them, it was just innocuous. You know, that's just part of the territory. There's nothing wrong. You know, all right, I'll get circumcised. There's no big deal about that. It didn't mean anything. Um, them being circumcised would have actually, like, you know, it wasn't a moral issue. Um, we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, But they would have been more accepted and then would have been just adopting the traditions that they had grown up with. So for them so far, it's not that big a deal. The further you get away, as the Jewish population gets smaller, and there'll be areas of synagogues, and the Gentile population gets a little bigger, there is that essence of distinctness that comes more into sharp focus. That when the majority is Gentile and the Jewish population says, if you want to become a Jew, you need to be circumcised, it becomes kind of more of an identity. You know, this is, more, this is a bigger issue. And so as you get to some of those other areas, um, if you became a Jew, now... You fear the rejection of the Gentiles or the pagans that you come out of. So, because it's never just a one-way street, right? There's always, like, repercussions on both ends. If you leave, you know, a, a household that it will, will go to, you know, the church in Lustra where they, they uh, worship Zeus, right? If you come out of that, that background of worshiping Zeus and you go become a Jew, well, now you wouldn't partake in anything that had to do with worshiping Zeus. And so you've kind of cut yourself off from those pe- your people and your family and all of those things. Um, it's a little bit less so as stringent today as, you know, when you ask somebody where your parents live, it's not always down the street or, <laughs> you know, even in the same town. You know, as, as everyone's kind of all over the place, uh, breaking from tradition becomes a little bit, you know, easier. I guess. You don't, have, you don't have that cutting off of your family and your associates that comes along with it. So I kind of say all this so we kind of get an understanding of what's going on. So then there's much debate. It really just wasn't an issue. Either there weren't many Gentiles that were being saved or they just you know, became, got circumcised and obeyed the traditions. But now somebody's bringing this up and saying, like, well, these Gentiles don't want to be circumcised. And Paul's like, I don't think they need to be circumcised. And some of the people are like, what do you mean they don't need to be circumcised? That's just the way we've always done it, right? You grew up as a Pharisee, Paul. Like, it, you know, that's what you would have expected. And Paul's like, I think we're starting to, like, mix the issues of what it means to be a part of the church, what it really means to be saved. If you want to boil it down to something that's even more fundamental than, like, just belonging – to really like being accepted by God, and that's like that's kind of like the fundamental issue of what is being brought up in front of them. What would be the implication <clears throat> so So for Paul, <clears throat> the issue is not really a moral one, but a ritualistic one. That ends up becoming something like if you look at the Torah, it's not something that um, was one of the Ten Commandments or something that was uh, a moral issue, but it was something about obedience and doing something uh, regarding. A custom, and so that's kind of what is being brought to the table. How much do we still do today? Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe the word "custom." Yeah. So maybe the word "maybe" means the word "custom" is a little bit too light of what it means. But if you think of um, commands in Scripture, there are some that are moral commands uh, because you violate. Um, Uh, either God's identity, you know, you're not loving God or loving your neighbor, or there's things that you need to do this. In order to be made right before God, you need to make this sacrifice. Or you need to wear this type of clothing. Or you need to er er eat this type of food. Now, it became a more prominent issue because this one act was identified with the sign of the covenant. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's where, that's where, that's where, that's where like uh, everybody in the debate is going to, is starting to come out of, well, should we make this change? And if you want to make a reference to the Anabaptists and say like, well, we don't need to baptize infants because baptizing an infant is not really, you know, where salvation lies, right? It's, it's upon a person's faith in Jesus Christ, Now, it's interesting if you look at, you know, Zwingli, um, or at least, you know, I guess uh, historians would say that Zwingli would have gone gone on with that, but he wanted to kind of take some reforms a little bit slower, you know, not like the next year, some of his disciples. Because he ended up meeting with some of these guys weekly and saying, you know, looking at Scripture. And they were like, whoa, there's other things we need to be doing. And he's kind of like, well, let's slow down. Let's kind of like listen to what the council says. And some of these guys were like, no, we need to like force this through. And that's where it kind of became an issue. What's that? Calvin was there also. As far as he was actually Yeah. What? Yeah, yeah. Well, we can, I can still hear you. We can still hear you. Calvin. Yeah. Cal, Calvin would have been in that in that fray as well. A little bit later, 10, 10 20 years later um, from when this happened. Uh, even in the, the beginning of, of the Reformation. So we get to this point where we said, you know, um, you know we're going to debate whether this needs to be done or not. So, what's the implications? You know, because at some point, I guess if you say, let's assume that some Gentiles had been saved in Judea, you know, in the Jerusalem church, and they would have just gotten circumcised. What, what's the implications if that mandate went out that, okay, be, to be a part of the church, everyone needs to be circumcised? Okay. Is showing that you, that what you believe. Okay. You a, a yes. So are, so two plans, but kind of yes. 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 And I, and I think even a bigger issue, what's a problem if you let a work creep in? Even if it was a sign, and we'll even go so far as even saying, even baptism. What's the problem with, if, with uh, a person saying that a work, even if you said it was out of obedience to what Christ said, but a work is, has any connection or has any merit in regards to your salvation? No, I know, but I'm saying, what is the danger if that is the implication? Like, if, I, if we said, all right, you made a profession of Christ, you need to be baptized in order to be saved. That's wrong. Well, I know it's wrong. What's the implication of that? You're a member of the Church of Christ. Okay. You're not trusting the work, Christ God. Yeah. So, at the time... At the time, it kind of logically follows out of, like, what Christ said. It would logically follow to be circumcised out of obedience. And really, the infant baptism baptism is kind of like the sign that would replace, uh, for the church, would kind of replace circumcision, right? And uh, even where some churches say that we still, they, they, they do infant baptism. There are still Protestant churches that do infant baptism, and some of you probably came out of that, because they see it as the sign Uh, that is similar to that sign of the covenant, although the baptism would be a sign of the new covenant. And so, but they make those parallels between the New Testament and the Old Testament and the church in Israel at that time. But they wouldn't take the next step, what what I'm getting to the implications, kind of Anthony alluded to that, is at the time it makes kind of sense when you kind of package it together. But later on, as a... Um, to be, if anyone ever questioned your salvation, there is a danger to point to that thing as one justification of why you are saved. Paul would even look at his own credentials and say, I was uh, born in this clan, I was circumcised on the eighth day, I was this, that, and that. I was a Pharisee amongst Pharisees. So he had all the credentials of you know of a of a you know whatever a god-fearing jew a jew amongst jews but he says all of that means nothing and so that this is where the issue is is and i don't even know if they see that at that time you know maybe paul is starting to see that at this time as well is that we can't make this any sort of implication because later on a person's going to look at that and say you know it's because of that that i was saved you know people still do that you know well, I, are you, you know, Do you believe in Christ? Yes. I was baptized when I was, in, you know, when I was young. And like, they look at some of these things that they have done. And so you, as soon as you start importing anything that you have done, you start to then muddy the waters as far as what it means to be saved. And that's, that, we'll get to that issue in just a second. So there are a lot of implications, but those are primary big implications of what is going on. And yes, it was a nation of Israel versus church thing, but we can start seeing like down the road... And we did see down the road, even in our own history, of things that were implied or seen as necessary in order to be saved. And so, who stands up to resolve the situation in this? Yeah. So, Peter stands up. And what did he appeal to? What's that? Yeah, took him back to Cornelius. And last time we see Peter standing up before a group, they were like, Peter, what are you doing in that Gentile's house? And he's like, listen, this is what happened. And just as kind of a refresher, you know, Peter was down south. We kind of like looked at how God kind of led him from one city to the next, and he was invited to come uh, to Joppa and, and stay there, and he's, he's down there. And up in Caesarea, you have Cornelius. Uh, he has a vision. He says Cornelius is a God-fearing man. We don't see that he's a Jewish you know, con- not converted, so he's still looked at as a Gentile, but he fears God. He pays alms uh, to the poor, um, to the, you know, Jewish uh, group. And so, um, so we would say that, you know, he's, given, gotten, he's gotten a vision to send some man down to Peter. And Peter is up on the rooftop, and he's having this weird dream about being told to eat meat uh, that is, um, was unclean. And he's like, I can't do this. And God says, Eat it. And he's like, No, I'm, you know, we Jews are forbidden to eat this. And he's like, and he three times that happens. And he says, Well, what I deem is clean, you do not deem as unclean. And so that was kind of a realization. And all of a sudden he gets a knock at the door, and the men that Cornelius sent down gets Peter and says, Hey, our boss wants to talk to you. Now, Peter would never, as a Jew, gone to a Gentile's house, but he's like, you know what? <laughs> something amazing just happened, and I'm going to go with you. And when he went, he shared the gospel with them, and all of Cornelius' household was saved. The Holy Spirit is poured out on them, and they start speaking in tongues. And so God is obviously doing something that he did when Peter first preached the gospel, and there was you know, tongues being poured out uh, to the Jewish crowd and the, the church, all the people were added to the church that day during Pentecost. And so you start seeing those connections. So when, they were, when Peter was asked, hey, what are you doing there? He just appealed to the fact that God, this seems to be what God's doing. And now he's opened up a way to the Gentiles. Well, flash forward, you know, uh, eight or nine years later, it's been kind of a, a span of time, is that Peter's standing up and he's appealing to this same issue. Remember the whole thing about Cornelius? You know there was an issue back then, but we all, you know, after I kind of said what was happening, everybody was like, "Well, praise God! It seems like God is now moving towards the Gentiles." Except the church down there wasn't moving towards the Gentiles. It took other people to uh, to make those inroads and to actually go out and reach the Gentiles. And so he appeals to what happened, right? Uh, what happened to Cornelius? And he says. That what made them disciples was not anything that they had done, right? But it was that that God had given them a cleansed heart by their faith. At the end of verse 9, right? He, He made no distinction between us, Jews, and them, Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And that is the central issue of what is at debate here in the Jerusalem Council. And so he says, now, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples? Now, why did, he think, why did he say that? Why are you putting God to the test? I mean, often we think, like, maybe God is testing me. But every once in a while that language is used is, like, why are you putting God to the test? What is it that, that puts God to the test? One of the examples, you guys remember uh, Gideon? You remember Gideon. What happened, what happened with Gideon? What's that? <laughs> you had fleas? Oh, fleas, yeah. So God said, you know, I, I'm choo- choosing you, Gideon. And he says, well, you know, yeah, show me a sign. That's essentially what it is. Show me a sign. And so the whole thing with the fleece? And so he put God to the test, you know, in that sense. Now, God obliged. And Peter says, why are we putting God to the test? Like, why do we need to add something else to this to say, is God really doing something amongst the Gentiles? Like, if you don't believe, you know, my testimony who walked with Christ and you believe other Jewish witnesses or, you know, other Jews who were part of the church who were with him at that time that witnessed these things and saw the the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, like what else do we need? The fact that God is reaching these Gentiles. Like what else do we need? Why are we putting God to the test and saying, "Well, now they need to do something else." Now we need to do something. else. Someone, no, no, okay, sound like your accent, What's that? <laughs> My accent. G- what did I say, Gideon? <laughs> it's from Gideon. <laughs> he was. Southern parts of Israel. What's that? <laughs> it's her. But it's her Nebraska ears. Uh. But you know, the, the interesting part with Gideon is really how God does that because, you know, the, the Jews kept asking Jesus for a sign, and he said, A wicked and perverse generation looks for a sign. Mm hmm. Is a walk of faith. Yeah, and Paul would criticize in the Corinthian church, right? He says Jews ask for a sign, you know and that that Jews are always looking for for a sign of something else. Well show just show us a sign. It's like, this is your sign, right? What more do you need other than like people speaking in in tongues is a uh, is a sign that God is doing something? it's really the sign is again confirmation. It's not like, okay. Now you must believe, because then, right, you know, we have some people who, in certain churches, would say, well, if we look at the Old te- or sorry, if we look at the New Testament, we're not going to go to the Old Testament, we look at the New Testament, that believers, that once a person became a believer, that then they spoke in <laughs> tongues, right? And so, in order to truly be saved, you have to not only believe, but then you have to speak in tongues, and some would say, you know, if you're, like, you know, in some churches, if you're like, well, how do I speak in tongues? They'd be like, well, we, we can teach you. Yeah. So then it becomes a work, not like just God. That's something that God did on the spot. That it was now like, you know, we can teach you how to do this. It becomes a work. And so then it's like, well, you're going to go to Acts, but you're going to hold miss holy the whole whole W W-H-O, H uh, O everything that was talked about in the Jerusalem Council. That there's nothing that we need to add to this in order to be saved. But some again want to put that yoke, that burden, on people. So, um, was circumcision specifically the yoke that the Jews could not bear? Was that, was that the yoke that he was saying, putting on the neck? What was the yoke that they couldn't bear? That was the easy part, right? Because that, that was done to them when they were, they were infants. It was the entire law. It was everything that they had to do. It was the fact that even Peter, like, you know, in dietary, and you know, we talked about how food was just a part of your life, that you got so accustomed to, like, a particular ritual and, and, you know, thing. I guess if anyone's ever been on a diet, you have to be pretty rigid about what you eat or what you don't eat, you know, especially if you've been around people who have, like, certain allergies. And, like, I remember we had friends that uh, it was a married couple. One was a vegetarian and the other was gluten-free. And so we had, we had an issue where, like, sometimes we would, we, uh, Sarah and I would, like, make a meal and we'd be like, oh, we should invite them over. And it would be like, eh, sorry, it's got meat in it. Emp, sorry, it's got wheat in it, you know. And so it's like, no meat, no wheat. Like, <laughs> what are we left with? So, like, <laughs> let's make a salad or something, you know. So, so then we had to be purposeful about, like, having them over. It couldn't just be like, we made an abundance of food, like, you know, join in with us because – you know, they just couldn't. You know, or one one could one could eat and the other would watch. You know, <laughs> so um, so. But that actually will. You know, that illustration will speak to what the issue is going to be if we get to it this morning. But we might get to it this morning. So. So Paul, is, so everything that was put on him, Peter even acknowledged that as he's like, eat this food. And he's like, I can't eat that food. That stuff is unclean. That would make me unclean. And I would have to like then go through a, a ritual to make myself clean again, to then become and be part of you, God, you know, to be made right before you, God. And so God's like, if I'm saying it's clean, it's clean. He's like, all oh, right, right. Whatever, whatever you say. Goes. And so then that was the illustration. Doesn't mean that Peter stopped, you know, stopped his diet because he still believed that and wants to see in Galatians that he would still kind of uh, you know change his diet depending on the circumstances, but that's for another time. So he says, Through what well, so what means does Peter say that they are saved? Yeah. It's the grace of, the grace of Jesus. The grace of Jesus again. That like that is the central focus. That it's the grace of Jesus. So what does he mean by that? That idea of grace is that you know kind of church word that we kind of throw around. But grace is what we talked about this you know, last time or the time before that. Grace means unmerited favor, unmerited favor right? It's a it's a uh, gift. It uh, is it is yeah. It is like a one direction from God. To man, and it is the grace, the gift of Jesus, that Jesus gave His life up on His own accord for us. Was there anything you did? You know, did you, were, you, were you were you there to you know set up the cross? Be like, hey, Jesus, I set up the cross for you so you could die for us, right? <laughs> I mean, how how ridiculous does that even sound? So, um, it was Jesus that gave His own life up, and that is a central focus. So it's not by what you do, it's by a gift of God. And we we know that, you know, we say that. But there's also, you know, some that would would teach, I wouldn't say necessarily, would teach maybe otherwise. Have you guys heard of free grace theology? Anyone ever heard of free grace theology? It's kind of put in contrast to what some would say is lordship salvation. You guys ever heard of that? So, we would say at this church, we, we, can, we believe in lordship salvation. And so, if we are saved, that in order to be saved, it is preceded by what? What's that? Well, regeneration. Well, regeneration is an act of God. But what would we say is, like when, when the Jews said, what shall we do? What did, how did Peter respond? You remember? Repent, yeah. So repent, and he says, "Be baptized." We won't get in the baptism part, but we've talked about that. So repent is the first thing, but repentance is an act of who? God. <laughs> so, yeah. So I like how you guys said that, right? So we would say we repent, but it's based on God's giving us the ability to repent. Whereas free grace would say, "Well, you repenting is now you doing any work in your own salvation." So we don't believe in repentance. You can still believe in Jesus and not have to repent at all. Okay. <laughs> on the second, on the other aspect, what would we say in Lordship Salvation that there is no work that actually makes us saved? But what do what do works do in regards to our salvation? It's the evidence of our salvation. So, right, you know, like uh, by by our works, you would know that you are saved. It's 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 a it's a, it's a I don't say method, but it's a mode of assurance that God gives us, but it's, it's reflective of what God has done. Free grace says that's a work. So you don't, even need to, you don't even need to have any good works in order to be saved. And so you're like, well, that almost seems to only exist within like, the realm of theory, but not in how God works. So you don't have to repent, and you don't have to do any good works, and you still, but you can be saved because it is purely an act of God. So then you start, so that makes sense, but does it make sense? It makes sense that we don't want to add anything, right, to what God has done, but it doesn't make any sense in the fact that, well, how can you be saved if you don't repent? If you don't see yourself as unworthy before God, how, how, how is that anything, you know, reflective of what God has done in your heart? If he has given you a new heart, it's God helping you repent. It's through regeneration he's given you the ability to repent. And if you've repented and you've given given a new heart, subsequently, you would have good works that follow. But those who teach, like, we don't even want to, like, we don't even want to see ourselves as adding any sort of work, so we're going to teach this. But it would be very confusing, right? It would be very confusing. (laughs) We don't need to tell where that came from. What's that? Ryrie? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it is, it is, and I don't, I, I don't know where they I mean, I know there's some big proponents there, but I don't, even, I don't know where overall Dallas is in that state, so. I'm not the city, but Dallas Theological. The whole, not the whole city. Yeah. We'll just say all of Texas, right, is teaching that. No, so Dallas Theological was where this came out in the late, yeah, seminary in the late 90s. So, um, easy believism, yeah, sometimes called antinomianism, you don't have to, you know, so, but you see, you see, you see vestiges of that in different places, Um, and again, you know, you wouldn't get this in this church, but you go to other churches or people that are, even in, within our kind of own, you know, I guess, whatever areas uh, of theology would say, even, even how you preach needs to be done in a certain way so you don't start to get people thinking that there's anything that they need to do in order to be made right with God. We could spend a whole lot of time talking about what that looks like, you know. But I just say that is the issue that they dealt with 2,000 years ago are still issues that we deal with here. They're still parsing out, like, what does it really mean to be saved? And we would say, like, oh, well, it's faith in Jesus Christ is all it is. Okay, well, how does that practically work out? Could I have faith in Jesus Christ but not have any works that follow? Mm, bah, <laughs> you know, I guess you're like, well, theoretically, that's true. Just as like some people would say, you know, is there any way that I could, I could live a sinless life? You know, and some would teach yes. And you're like, well, practically, how is that the case? You know, because we know that we still are flesh and that we're going to sin. So anyway, that's still issues that are, are dealt with even today that we aren't from. So there's a lot that we can pull out here at the Jerusalem Council with the issues that they're dealing with, what Peter is, is getting to the heart of. It is all by Christ. It's, it's by His gift that we are saved. We don't have to do anything else in order to be saved. Verse 12, we see the result of what he said. and All the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will turn, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So, after what effect did Peter have after he spoke, they were silenced, right, you know, made perfect sense to them, you know, like, there's really nothing we can disagree with, uh, with Peter. Um, so, what did Paul and Barnabas add to this conversation after Peter, you know, after everyone fell silent, then they just kind of filled in that vacuum of silence and just said, well, let me just tell you what's going on out, you know, in Asia Minor, and this is what happened, we went to Cyprus, and this happened there and this proconsul was saved and we moved up and all these people were gathered in Antioch, Pisidia, and they came to hear the gospel. They they wanted to hear more. And the next week, you know, Gentiles were there and, you know, and then I was pushed out of the city and, you know, just one place after another of what's going on. And we came back and we set up the church and there's elders there now. And, you know, and the people, um, you know, responded, right, that that, uh, uh, with joy, Earlier on, I imagine that they felt similarly, but they kind of said their thing. And then we see James step in. And James is the brother of Jesus. We know that in a couple other areas, that uh, after Christ, in 1 Corinthians 15, after Christ had, was resurrected, that it says that, he went to, um, uh, that Jesus appeared to his brother after appearing to 500 others. Um, in Galatians 1.19 It says that Paul visited James after fleeing Damascus, which was about 10 years earlier. Um, And we see that because of that, that Jesus went to James, that James is now believed. And then 10 years later, a little more than that, uh, that James is now in a prominent place in this church in, in Damascus. And so James stands up, and he appeals to them. And he appeals to them by quoting Amos. It goes back to the Old Testament where or in the context that God is restoring Israel. And so here, though, these nations where Israel is being restored, but God will also restore all the nations around them. He refers to all the nations called by my name to be part of that restoration. And James says, these are the people that are being called by God's name. All right, because wherever Paul went, it wasn't, you know, he went and he spoke the gospel to those that God had appointed to believe. And then he moved on to the next place. Everybody who had been appointed to follow Christ by God, who is, you know, so those who were appointed by his name, are now appealing and responding to the gospel. And so James says, So it seems like God is now doing that in other places. So we'll stop there because I, I want to make sure we spend a little bit of time. I don't rush through it, um, but we'll kind of finish up and then see where we go next. But they kind of say, "Yes, we have. Uh, you know, we see that it is only by grace that we've been saved. But here's a few things that I want you to do." Um, and so they are going to tell the Gentiles to abstain from doing certain things, and that's what we we'll get to the we'll uh, we'll get to the reasons why. I thought you said there is nothing that we need to do in order to be saved. No, there's not. But because you're saved, there are certain things that we shouldn't do, and there's reasons for that. And the reasons have to do not with their salvation, but with fellowship. And so we get part of that package, what does it mean to be saved, but also what does it mean to belong, and how, do we, how are we to interact with one another, um, even with differing opinions on particular matters. Um, so, we'll pick that up next week. Any, uh, I don't know, closing comments or thoughts? Would you recommend The Gospel Corner of Jesus, uh, yeah, is is, speaks about that lordship, that salvation, what it is, uh, by John MacArthur, and speaking about kind of the free grace theology, um, which again, I don't, I don't, you don't hear as much about, but you you hear pieces of still still around. So that would be a good one. All right, well, we'll uh, pack it up.